If you'll look with me in Mark chapter 7, verse 1, our text tells us, Then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him, that's to Jesus, having come from Jerusalem. Now when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is, unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. And when they had come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and couches. Then the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? He answered and said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God... You hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers, cups, and many other such things you do. Glance over with me to verse 20. Jesus continues, the passage concludes, saying, What comes out of a man, that defiles a man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within and defile a man. And Father, we just humbly pause and ask for the grace and the supernatural power of your Holy Spirit as we continue now in our worship by giving our attention to the Word of God. Lord, we know that you see us standing here this morning. We do such out of honor and respect of your word. And Lord, like a soldier waiting for our marching orders, we pray that through this particular text as our assignment, as we continue to work our way through Mark's gospel, that you would now by your spirit write your will on the fleshly tablet of our hearts and that you would speak things to us individually that we need to hear and collectively as a group of your people who gather here as a church family. So Lord, you know what that means. Please remove distractions and hindrances, any spiritual warfare. And we ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit's ministry, you would now speak clearly to us. And we ask this expectantly in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, there is a vital reality that we need to become aware of, and not just aware of, but I think fully and sincerely accept both about ourselves as well as about other people around us. And until we do such, we will never experience proper relationship with God, nor will we ever honestly live correctly. And that important reality is this, is that the main problem with human beings, the root issue to all of our struggles individually, the problems and struggles that you're seeing happening in society, they are not political issues, they're not societal ideals, it is the inward condition of the human heart. That is the issue that everyone is struggling with individually, that is the problem with every family, and it is the problem within our society, being born with an inherent sinful nature, that we are born automatically broken, we are inclined to do what is wrong, we are automatically inclined to rebel, to do those things that are not good but are rebellious to God, and automatically we are born with defiled hearts. We are not born innately good and then we find our way towards what's wrong. We are born, the Bible teaches, innately bad, depraved. Our hearts are polluted. Our minds are broken and corrupted. We only live that out as we journey. And that needs to honestly be, therefore, our foremost concern as human beings. And it's where the majority of our attention needs to be if we're going to address our individual lives our family situations, and even what's happening among the society at large. And we see that concept emphasized in this encounter with Jesus 
and the religious leaders in our text this morning. If you look with me in verse 1, as the passage opens, we're told that the Pharisees and some of the scribes, they now came together to Jesus, having come from Jerusalem. So the religious leaders, represented by the Pharisees and the scribes, we're told now, leave, if you would, their spiritual headquarters. We might refer to Jerusalem as the spiritual headquarters of the religious leaders. That's where the temple was. That's where the established religious system was, where the people gathered to worship God in that day. And they now go north up into Galilee to seek out Jesus and his followers. And as they arrived there, notice that those who came, Mark tells us in verse 1, were from two esteemed religious groups among the established religious system of that day. And both of these two groups, the scribes and the Pharisees, held great influence and recognition among the people. They were those who were looked to for a long time, perceived as the spiritual authority regarding all matters spiritual and society in that day let the scribes, the Pharisees, as well as often we refer to as the Sanhedrin, we don't see them here, but these groups dictated to the people what was meant spiritual, what was meant to be holy. This was who was looked to as an understanding of what was holy and religious and right with God. You notice, first of all, in verse 1, there's a reference there to the Pharisees. That term Pharisees literally means the separate ones. Uh, those who were the pious ones or separated. That's where that phrase came from. And this was a sect of religious, rigid legalists who with strong adherence, not only to the Mosaic law, but many of the traditions of the day came into existence into what we often refer to as the intertestament period. Now, what we're referring to by that is the time period between the end of the Old Testament and then when the New Testament scriptures arrived, and there's a few hundred year period, you have to understood, often referred to as the silent period, from the closure of Malachi to the gospel of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, where we then begin our New Testament. And during that time period, these individuals prompted initially with a good intention, with zeal for God and zeal in their hearts to preserve the law and remain faithful to God, afraid that during that time period that the Jewish faith and the belief system of Judaism would be polluted by pagan you know, practices and the, the culture of the day, they determined to devoutly keep every portion of the law to the minute detail as much as possible. And so they took this title to themselves, the Pharisees, the separate ones, the separated ones, and the idea was, despite what everyone else is doing, we are going to live separated unto God with the most strict adherence, and we will make sure to preserve everything of the Mosaic law in Judaism so that it is not polluted. And they tried to do this by observing every little minutia of the law and everything that they believed that it was the obedience or the carrying out of the law. So what they did was seeming to be right with God as they took the word of God looking at it and certainly they obeyed it in strong adherence. But even more than that, they then begin to, and we'll talk more about this with the scribes as well, they then began to look at it and say, well, what does that really mean to obey that particular command of God or the law of God? And they began to add things to the word of God as a part of their observance and rigid adherence of proving their devotion to God. Now, unfortunately, what happened in so doing this they began to lose heart connection to God himself. They became very zealous for following religious tradition and rules and rituals, but they forgot the purpose of their spiritual lives, which was to actually have meaningful relationship with God. In fact, Jesus himself said in John's gospel, you diligently search the scriptures thinking in them you have eternal life, but he said you fail to realize these are the very things that testify of me. In other words, they would diligently study the word of God for intellectual experience, but they were failing to see the whole purpose of the word of God was to reveal the person behind the pages. It was to reveal God himself. It was to reveal the Messiah, the coming Savior, Jesus, and they refused to see that. And they developed really into a sect of rigid religious rule keepers who codified their faith in God, and everything was just about rule keeping, and that was their view of spirituality. And they felt, therefore, that they were more holy and close to God 
because of the things that they did and their rituals and their rules that they kept and the things that they would refuse to do that others would do. They became very spiritually arrogant and self-righteous. We see this of them in the Gospels. And they were extremely critical of those who did not live according to their Pharisaic standards. And they became very self-righteous in that way. Now, the other group, we're told, that came together with them up to see Jesus was also the scribes. And the scribes were those who actually hand-copied the scripture from scroll to scroll. In a day when there was no printing press, literally they would copy from one copy of the scripture, handwritten down other copies of scripture. So these scribes became incredibly knowledgeable, of course, in the actual truths of the word of God. And so they therefore became the primary interpreters of the scripture and the primary teachers explaining what the scriptures meant. Now the scribes, together with the Pharisees, over time, the problem was they eventually created these volumes of both oral tradition and written tradition, as I said a moment ago, of what the word of God actually meant to be observed. We often have this referred to as what's called the Mishnah, the Gemara, or the Talmud, which was a accumulation of all of those oral and written traditions. And what that was, in essence, is these scribes would write out commentary and page after page after page of what an actual command of God meant to actually be observed. So, for example, a very common one we all know, that you were to do no work on the Sabbath. Well, that wasn't clear enough. What they did was they had to write out page upon page, rule upon rule, what does it actually mean to not work on the Sabbath? It therefore means that you can do these things, but you can't do these things, and you have to do these things, but you better not do these things. And they would write out page after page of lengthy ritual and requirement and rites that were to be followed in order to actually obey the scripture, to become obedient to God's commands. Now, this became known as what we read about here in our text, and we'll talk more about, as the traditions of the elders, so when you see Jesus here referring to the traditions of the elders that needed to be followed, these religious traditions became to them just as important and sometimes even more important, the religious traditions of the elders, than the actual scripture itself. And they came together now to Jesus, but notice they don't come to worship the Lord. They don't come to follow the Lord. They don't come to learn from the Lord. The only thing they come for is in jealousy of his following and a critical spirit to point out the faults of the people who were not following their religious system that they believed was necessary for holiness. Look at me in verse 2. It says, now when they saw, this is what they came looking for, that some of Jesus' disciples ate bread with defiled that is, unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands. Notice, this should be underlined in a special way. Holding the tradition of the elders, verse 4, and when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and there are many other things which they have received and hold like the washing of cups and pitchers and copper vessels and couches. So as they arrive, the first thing they do is they assess the followers of Jesus and notice how they're operating. They quickly find fault because they notice them eating food while disregarding washing their hands in the special way that the Pharisees and all those who followed their ways would ceremonially wash their hands as a part of their religious tradition. Now, please understand, if the text is not clear enough, the hand washing here that's referred to has nothing to do with hygiene, nothing to do with sanitation. It has everything to do with religious ceremony, thinking that doing such is what kept a person holy and free from moral defilement that would be ingested by touching things that sinners were touching. The Pharisees and the Jews, it says there, do not eat. It says, verse 2, notice, unless they wash their hands, it says, in a special way according to the tradition of the elders. Now, for this special ceremonial hand washing, 
of cleansing their hands before eating, the water itself could not even be kept in ordinary containers. It was kept in special stone jars because you did not want to use just ordinary water because ordinary water might be defiled. You had to use holy water. Wash your hands in the holy water to make sure it's not defiled. This is sacred holy water. And the way it was done is they would use a half of eggshell. You would scoop the water. First, the hands were held in an upward position, and the water would be poured over the fingers. It would run down. You had to wait till it dripped off the wrists. Then you did a special maneuver in washing your hands. Then you turned your hands the other direction to then rinse off all the defilement. And you waited for it to all drip off your fingers, dried your hand in a special way. And they said if someone was really committed, they would even do that between each course of the meal. So there was this whole ceremonial process. And the idea, again, was if you touch things that the world had touched or ungodly people had touched, their sin germs, I suppose, somehow may have defiled the food in the marketplace or your cups or whatever it may be, and it might now be on your hands. So you wanted to make sure all the moral spiritual defilement was off of your hands so that you did not ingest any of that and become morally defiled yourself. That's what's meant, no doubt, in verse 4, where it tells us when they come from the marketplace... That was the grocery store, if you would, where everyone would be interacting. When they come from the marketplace, it says they do not eat unless they wash first. So the idea was we were interacting with pagan people who might be, in, you know, in a sense, touching our stuff and, and their sin may infect us. So we want to make sure that we use the holy water and we go through the ceremony to cleanse ourselves from all contamination to make sure that we were clean. And notice it wasn't just washing their hands. We're told there in verse four that many other things also they have received and hold, it says, like even, verse 4, the washing of their cups, their pitchers, their copper vessels, and their couches. So the majority, notice, of their perception of what it meant to be spiritual was all tied up in rituals. Their concept of what it meant to be holy to feel holy was all about the mysticism of the rituals and the routines and the rites, and it all looked and felt very spiritual, very holy, but the whole thing was tied up not in what's going on in their heart, but it was about excessive ceremonial ritual. Now, the question becomes this. Why did the religious leaders, and it says all the Jews who obviously followed their system, why were they so concerned about observing all of these rituals. Well, we're told there that they were holding to, it says, verse 3, the tradition of the elders. In other words, those who they looked at as these are the holy men, these are the spiritual ones, they wear the right robes, they have the titles, they have the positions, and they're the ones that tell us this is what it means to be religious. This is what it means to be right with God. This is how a person obtains and maintains holiness. So we need to hold to these traditions and keep these religious traditions because that is what they tell us by their interpretation it means to be holy. So we have to hold to their traditions. It tells us in verse 4 that there were many other things that they were diligently trying to keep as well, thinking that those religious duties and following that religious system was what made them right with God. Now look, we can look upon that, and it doesn't take a far stretch to realize that same problem exists even to this day. In a lot of religious confusion that even exists in the modern day, what we often refer to as the church, in what we would reference as, I would say, church dogma. That is, individuals who, whether in time past or presently, perceived as spiritual leaders implement religious practices. They determine or create certain rituals or certain rites and ordinances that the church is to observe 
And these are designed according to their supposed ideas of what it means to follow the scriptures or to do what's holy and religious. And that becomes adopted and accepted as authority over the lives of God's people. And then you have these religious traditions and rituals and requirements that people then adhere to among the church. Rather than, listen, rather than just directly obeying the word of God. Rather than just reading the scriptures and following the word of God itself, instead, people are more concerned, sadly, in some religious systems with their traditions and the rituals. And the problem with that is the rituals and the traditions and the religious routines even become more important than the word of God and many a times eclipse the word of God altogether. And people with strict adherence know the rituals, they know the system, and they follow that. And sadly, people feel compelled to follow those things, but biblical instruction is kind of cast to the side, and this is the issue that Jesus takes up, particularly with the religious leaders. Now, in this spirit of self-righteous criticism, notice they become angry that their standard of their religious system is not being observed by Jesus' disciples and what did Jesus say in another location in the Gospels? He said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So watch how that proves itself. Verse 5, it says, then, because remember, they found fault with them. They weren't following their traditions. Then some of the Pharisees and the scribes asked Jesus, saying, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? So they're frustrated, they're bothered. The religious leaders come to Jesus and they see, wait a minute, you're not forcing them to follow the rituals. Why aren't you making them do the religious routines? How can they be holy if they're not doing our system of religious practice? And they question the Lord on this, thinking they're identifying error thinking that they're actually pointing out that these people are unholy. And you notice Jesus will completely disregard their fault-finding attitude. He leaves them in their critical spirit and doesn't even address their fault-finding mindset. And what he does, being God, he addresses instead the bigger issue, which was their own heart problem. And what Jesus does, because he is God, is he knows what actually matters to God not to a religious establishment. And Jesus says, how about we talk about what matters to God, not the religious system. And Jesus goes straight to the core of the issue here. Though they blindly felt they were spiritual, he did not want to leave them in their religious blindness. Look, I don't know about you folks. There have been times over the years since I've been a Christian and walking with the Lord, I'm sure, you know, maybe your experience as well, where I have found myself in a situation where I watch people going through all the ritual and the routine and the religious rites and practices, and my heart grieves because I realize there are so many people here who are honestly just going through the rhythm and the routine of what they have been taught, thinking this is how you're right with God. And they're completely, sadly blinded to the reality that all of that ritual and routine is basically blinding you. You have no reality of experience with God. You're just doing things to make your conscience help you to feel spiritual or to feel religious. It's quite sad, honestly. And Jesus here, in concern because of that, he goes directly to the heart of the issue to use this as a teaching opportunity, as the text concludes, look at verse 6. It says, Jesus answered them. He doesn't say anything about why weren't they following the system and the traditions. Jesus goes and says to them, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Notice that was the concern. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So Jesus, knowing that their greatest error was a departure from the word of God, 
in defining spiritual experience, and therefore Jesus addresses that error first. He realizes the reason you are so far off track is you've departed from the word of God. And you're just going by rituals and routines and traditions and interpretations of supposed holy men, and you've departed from the word of God. So the way Jesus addresses the issue is he brings them to the truth of scripture to address their issue. And you notice the first thing he does very uh, soberly is he starts out by identifying their condition by calling them spiritual hypocrites. Now, Jesus used that term quite regularly in the gospels and the majority of times that Jesus used that title to identify someone as a spiritual hypocrite, the majority of the time it was always the established religious leaders. The term that Jesus uses there, hypocrites, it's hypocrites in the original language. Of course, it's obvious where the term comes from. It was a phrase in the Greek that referred to one who would wear a mask in a play. So if someone was up on a stage they would hold the mask in front of their face and they would pretend to be someone than they really were. Makes total sense. That's where the, the hypocrites, one who wears the mask, they would hold up the mask to hide who they really were and they would play the part of someone else. And they would hide their real condition, their real identity, and they would wear the mask to keep people from seeing and knowing what was truly write about them and to give a different image and basically to be an actor and to play the part. And Jesus was revealing that this was what they were doing spiritually. They weren't really sincere. They weren't even really genuine in going through the religious routines. Many of them, they were just pulling the levers and pushing the buttons and doing the religious act. And it really meant nothing to them. And many people to this day, they will go through religious routines and walk out and then go home and pound a six-pack while they watch the NFL and get drunk. And I'm just using one analogy, but to many people, they will, and listen, quite honestly, that appeals, not saying that I do it, just pay attention here, that would appeal to my carnal nature. You mean I can live like the devil and all I got to do is show up once a week and do this and do that and go through this and push that button and pull that lever and, 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 and then I'm free to do what I want all week long, my flesh would love that. <laughs> I mean, I wonder what a good deal that is. You don't have to be genuine. You don't have to, and I'm not saying that no one is genuine, but what I'm telling you is that Jesus saw this is what that deteriorates into. And Jesus saw them, sadly, just going through the outward show, playing the spiritual part, pretending to be right with God, and they didn't even love God. They weren't even serving God. They weren't even sincere in their relations. They were just using the religious practices to pacify themselves and to hide what was true about themselves. So Jesus uses the word of God as a basis for identifying this. He calls them hypocrites, and then he says, well did Isaiah prophesy about you hypocrites. And he quotes from Isaiah chapter 29, in regards to what they were doing, and Isaiah said, these people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Notice, Jesus makes it very clear using Isaiah's prophecy that it is absolutely possible, God understands, to give lip service unto God, to go through the motions, if you would, of spiritual things, and our heart not be in the process. He says it is absolutely possible to honor God with our lips, we would say lip service, but our heart being far from God in the process. If we were to take that to ourselves, that absolutely means this. We can sing spiritual songs, we can sing worship songs, and go through the motion and say every word, and our heart really be completely disconnected, and all we're doing is just singing a song. But our heart's not really in it. We're not really engaged. Our heart's disconnected. Apparently, we can pray prayers. We can ramble off routine prayers and just recite prayers and our heart be far from God the whole time. We can talk about God and say things about God and quote scriptures and read scriptures and our hearts still be far from God. For example, our heart can be cold and apathetic, but we just go through spiritual motions. I know it's never happened to you, but it's happened to me once or twice. 
where we just go through the motions, we become very familiar with spiritual routines, but our heart is far from the Lord in the process. Or even perhaps somewhat worse is there are times when people can be going through spiritual routines and at the same time consciously living in ongoing sin. And so they're going through spiritual practices and they upkeep the spiritual routines outwardly, but yet privately and personally, they're living in conscious ongoing sin habitually, but they're going through the spiritual routines trying to pacify their conscience or also to play the part and give the image to everyone else, I'm doing completely fine and all it is is a spiritual cover-up. It's just hypocrisy. And Jesus says, this is a very genuine problem. He says, these people were honoring me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And then he goes on to say, verse 7, and in vain they worship me. The word vain means something that's worthless, empty, and profits nothing. Could it be possible that someone can actually go through the actions of worshiping God and it be empty? It actually be profitless. In other words, it does not profit by pleasing God, and it does not profit the person who's going through the routine of worship. They're just going through the routine. That's a sobering reality. That's a sobering reality that from time to time, I think it's fair to examine all of our own hearts. Could it be possible that there are times where Jesus looks at a worship meeting of a group of people who assemble under the banner of, hey, we are here to have a worship meeting. And Jesus looks at that worship meeting and he says, that's vain from heaven's perspective. What you're doing looks like you're having a great time. Honestly, it looks like you're having a spiritual pep rally. But nobody's really worshiping me. Is it possible that at times God looks upon a worship gathering and because the heart is not engaged and there's not sincere, genuine worship that the Lord looks upon that and says, that's completely empty from heaven's perspective and it's honestly not profiting you at all. You're stirring your emotions, but your spirit is not genuinely engaged. Is it possible from time to time that you and I can be guilty of such a thing? I think it's valuable to search our hearts on occasion and realize God would not put the x-ray upon the human heart and put that idea out there for us to evaluate if it wasn't a possible thing. If we could not be guilty of that, he would not bring it up. He said, Isaiah said it of the people in that day, and Jesus said in his culture and his generation hundreds of years later, this is exactly what's going on in that day. And look, I think we would be quite naive and arrogant to think it's not possible to go on in our day as well that we could become guilty of the same thing. Jesus says also they were teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. In other words, instead of just teaching the word of God itself, helping instruct people how to live for God according to the word of God, they were more focused on teaching people human ideas and rules and rituals and causing people to think that these are the things that matter to God and Jesus was greatly concerned because he says, you're, you're giving lessons, you're giving talks, you're giving teachings, but you're not commanding and teaching people how to actually obey God's instructions. And this is going to profit them nothing. Jesus goes on to illustrate what was happening particularly. Verse 8, he says, for laying aside the commandment of God, which would be the scripture, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups and many other such things you do. And he said to them, all too well, you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. So Jesus identifies from God's perspective, the more grievous error, and that was this. He says in verses eight and nine here, they were laying aside the word of God. They were willing to set aside the scripture itself. They were willing to disregard and not measure and align their spiritual lives, nor their worship gatherings, according to the truths of the scripture, as long as it went with the cultural system of the traditions of the elders. And they were willing to actually, Jesus says in verse 9 there, reject, which means to consciously disobey and dismiss scripture in order to follow the religious system. And if they had to choose between the system, the traditions, what we know in formality, or what does the word of God say? They were even willing at times to set aside obeying the word of God to follow some system, 
to keep some religious tradition or idea. They were giving more authority to traditional practices of a religious system than the authority of God's word itself. Look, folks, let me just say, traditions are not all bad. That's not the issue here. There are some traditions that can be healthy and normal. The New Testament speaks using the term tradition. Traditions are not all bad, but the truth of the matter is traditions can be dangerous if they're not kept in balance. And we have to just remember that. Whether it's a personal tradition or all the more when it's a spiritual tradition, sometimes traditions become established in our hearts spiritually and personally, and we get so inclined to hold to the tradition that we are willing, if necessary at times, to completely disregard, wait a minute, does that align with the word of God? But this is the way I've always done this. This is what I've learned. This was how I was raised. But God's word trumps everything. This is how our church always did it. When I was raised, this was how we did it. The problem is you shouldn't do this when you say you were raised, meaning that was how you learned something in the formality of a religious system, but this should trump even the formality of a religious system. Because if a practice you learned or a tradition you followed is something that contradicts the word of God or has no biblical basis, then you must be willing to question or not practice the tradition because we always give authority to the word of God first. And it is a great danger when we become so concerned about doing things according to the way that we're accustomed to doing them. And this can happen as a part of an individual life. It can happen as a part of a church. And then it becomes a stumbling block to true relationship with the Lord. And that's what Jesus was addressing here. He's saying, you're willing to set aside the word of God itself just to observe your religious system and your religious habits. And that is not what would be pleasing to God. God's word must have the final authority. And this is why Jesus says that all too well, he says, this was his concern. You reject the commandment of God, he says, that you may keep your tradition. And then he gives one example, verse 10. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and he who curses father and mother, let him be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father and mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is Corbin, that is a gift to God, dedicated to God, is what the word Corbin meant, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down, and many such things, Jesus said, you do. So Jesus cites just one example of how they were disobeying God's word by basically leaning on a religious tradition as we might say a loophole to justify how they didn't have to obey the word of God. And he cites an example here of this, quoting from Exodus chapter 20 there in verse 10. Exodus 20 was one of the 10 commandments that they were to honor their father and their mother. And then he also quotes as well there from Deuteronomy 5, and whoever curses father or mother disregards honoring their parent he says, was to be put to death. So the Bible was very clear, showing the responsibility of a child, that this was a very serious matter to God. That to God, he took it very seriously. I mean, imagine all the childish rebellion that we allow in our present culture if we were still under the Mosaic law. If someone disregards, curses their father and mother, capital punishment. I mean, that was pretty severe. God was saying, I I'm serious about this. <laughs> Under the Mosaic law, it was a very serious thing that children were obedient to their parents and respectful, and God commanded this. And it was more about the attitude of heart than it was even the outward observance. And the attitude of heart of honoring one's father and mother particularly extended into their latter years involving when your parents were aging, that you is an honorable act of repayment towards them as they had cared for you and taken you know, their, their effort to make sure that you were well cared for, that as they age, that you would then return that same care to them. And we know that's what Jesus saw this as because his concern of what they were doing is a direct inference to that, that they weren't caring for their aging parents. 
and they were selfishly neglecting something that God had commanded them to do in his word. Though the word of God had commanded them to fulfill this duty to honorably relate to their parents, what they had done is established a religious loophole to get out of the system. That's what's referred to in verses 11 and 12. Jesus said, you don't want to obey the word of God. So he says what they were doing was they were saying, whatever profit, mom and dad, you might have received from me, I'm sorry, but that's Corbin, it's a gift to God. In other words, what they would do is they would say, look, I would love to help you out, but unfortunately, all that I have, it's dedicated to God. Sounds pretty spiritual, doesn't it? It's dedicated to the temple. And I would like to help you, but honestly, everything's dedicated to God. And Jesus said they would use this Corbin thing, which was a, a basically a, a devoted thing, which they never really would even carry out. And he says, verse 12, therefore, you no longer let him do anything for his father and mother. So it basically was just a loophole to excuse yourself sounding really spiritual because they never would follow through with the vows typically. It just was a way to sound very spiritual, and it was an opportunity to disregard obeying a command of Scripture that would have been somewhat inconvenient, that would have been sacrificial, that would have been difficult. And Jesus says, by trying to appear spiritual, you're using a loophole, and you're no longer obeying the Word of God and letting it have its proper effect in your lives. And notice Jesus, as he uses this one example, he says the end of verse 13, and many such things as you do. So he's saying this is just one area where they were basically rationalizing how it was okay to do what they wanted and to disregard obeying the word of God. And folks, honestly, I think this is an area where we all have to be very careful because it's a very dangerous thing that we can slip into where we can make for ourselves these religious loopholes for why we don't obey what the Bible says. And boy, we're great at rationalizing, even sometimes kind of using hyper-spiritual reasoning for why we just don't obey the Scripture. I've heard this, this comment numerous times, and it's always, to me, greatly grieved me, where you'll try and address with someone that if they have an issue, according to what Jesus said, if someone sins against you, go to that person between you and him alone, address the sin, try and resolve the situation, and more than once, when I've tried to encourage someone to follow out the word of God's command, I've had people say something, you don't understand, hurt people can't do that. Hurt people can't do that. In other words, my loophole is, instead of in my will obeying the word of God, I'm going to use the justification, my emotions don't go along with that. Well, there are times when our emotions don't line up with the Word of God. <laughs> there are times when our thoughts don't align with the Word of God. And again, we, we can sometimes very subtly make these little loopholes for ourselves to not obey the Scripture, and we have to be very careful in regards to that. God's Word is always to have the final authority. Jesus goes on, or excuse me, verse 14 goes on to say, and when he then called the multitude to himself, notice he's going to make this a teaching opportunity now, he said to them, hear me everyone and understand. Notice he wants everyone to not miss the point. There is nothing that enters a man from outside which can defile him. He goes back to their original thing. But things which come out of him those are the things that defile man. And then Jesus emphasizes again, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. So notice, what did Jesus want everyone to understand? The thing Jesus wanted everyone to grasp in this moment was simply this, that the source of real human defilement is the heart. Jesus says the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. This is the problem, Jesus says. And it's the thing he wanted everyone to grasp, that the human heart doesn't become defiled. Jesus says the human heart's already defiled. That's the problem. Your heart's not becoming defiled by what you eat, Jesus said. Your heart is already defiled. Jeremiah says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. It's what's in the sinful, wicked heart, Jesus says here, that flows out of the sinful heart. That's what defiles a person. That's what pollutes an individual. That's what defiles and pollutes families and relationships and churches and society. The real problem with every person 
and the problems of humanity is the plague of the human heart, the sinful condition within every one of us that we're born in. Verse 17 says, and when he then entered the house away from the crowd, his disciples now ask him concerning the parable. So he said to them, are you thus without understanding also? Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him? Because it does not enter into his heart. Jesus is going to do biology. Now watch this. But his stomach and is eliminated, thus purifying all food. So Jesus clarifies food enters into a body and it passes through the digestive system, Jesus says. It does nothing to affect the spiritual or moral condition of a person. No particular food or special diet or way of eating has any bearing on someone's inward condition. Look, so important to recognize in a super health conscious culture, if someone wants to eat a certain way, a dietary way for health reasons, that's their prerogative. But God help us to never begin to think certain dietary ways of eating make us more spiritual, special. I had a great someone, the Daniel diet, the Daniel diet. But it was, remember, it was perceived. Was, the Daniel diet, I do the Daniel diet. Great, I do the carnivore diet. I don't know, it's just, I, what, what, to each his own. If you want to do something for a health prerogative, that's fine. But what did Jesus say there? He said, thus purifying all foods. There's a difference between a person's health decisions, and I, that's totally a reasonable thing, and someone's spiritual condition. What's, and here's the sad thing, folks. Let me just say briefly. Some people, just like loving the religious traditions and systems, they put more emphasis on their physical health than their spiritual health. Be careful of that. What's going to last forever? Your spirit, your soul. You're not going to keep this tent forever. The tent's temporary. So our emphasis should indeed be on the heart issue, and that's what Jesus keeps trying to bring them back to again and again that they would not miss it. Verse 20, he goes on to say, and what comes out of a man, that's what defiles a man. What should you be concerned about, Jesus says? What's coming out of you? That's what will defile your life. That's what will ruin your life. That's what will ruin a family, ruin a marriage, ruin a church, ruin society. He says it's what comes out of us, our inward condition, because it's corrupt. And if somehow we were to question, oh, come on, Jesus, that's a little bit too strict, a little bit too severe. I'm, we're not really that bad. He gives quite an exhaustive list here in verse 21. Well, let me say extensive because exhaustive would mean complete. He says, for from within, out of the heart of men proceed, and now he gives quite a list, evil thoughts. That's the problem with the heart. From the heart proceed evil thoughts. Boy, is it not sad and shocking how evil our thinking can be sometimes, how corrupt our minds can be sometimes, how cruel our evil thinking can be sometimes. Jesus says this is a heart issue. He also mentions out of the heart proceed adulteries. Adultery is any sexual activity with someone else's spouse or someone who's not your spouse. In selfishness for a moment of pleasure, disregarding God's sacred covenant of marriage and ruining your marriage or someone else's. He mentions also from the heart proceed fornications, and that encompasses any form of sexual activity with someone in any manner that you are not in a monogamous biblical version of marriage with, which is one male, one female in a covenant of marriage. So this encompasses everything from premarital sexual activity, having sexual activity in any capacity with someone you are not yet married to. It would refer to any form of homosexual practice. It would refer to, I believe as well. In fact, the term itself in the Greek, if you want to look at it, is actually the term pornea. Does that sound like something? Pornography. Jesus said, I tell you, if you've already looked at someone with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. 
Jesus, again, brings back, it's a heart issue, Jesus says. And he says, these are the things that defile human lives. He references murders there, that is selfishly hurting and cruelly putting an end to an innocent person's life for your own personal benefit. He references thefts, taking something away from another that does not rightfully belong to you. And look, folks, we can steal in many different forms. We can steal money. We can steal property. We can steal possessions. We can steal time. And Jesus says these are problems of the human heart. He references covetousness, which is a greedy desire to have something that you don't have or something maybe that you just want more of. And many times the term was used and associated with longing to have something that you weren't even intended to have, but you're just greedily longing for it. He references next in the list there, wickedness, that it's just corrupt, evil behavior, acting, we might say, in a vile manner that is destructive, that's disgraceful, that causes others to be influenced by that wickedness. He references next in the list coming from the heart, is deceit, and deceit refers to all forms of lying, all forms of cheating, being dishonest and deceptive in a deliberate attempt to mislead other people to take advantage of them. Any form of being deceitful. He references lawlessness in our list there, which is just a, a reference to disregard for all boundaries, no guidelines, no one is going to restrain me I am going to cast off restraint and live according to my desires, and I don't care if it harms others or not. No law is going to regulate the way that I'm going to behave. He references the human heart having an evil eye that is a perspective that's perverse or evil or harmful. He references in the list blasphemies, which is a reference both to speaking disrespectfully about God as well as slandering the character of another person in a damaging way. He concludes the list referring to the issue of pride, which I believe is the mother of all sins. And pride just refers to the arrogant attitude of having an inflated view of your own importance, which causes you to act in a way that is wrong and inappropriate because you have too high of a view of yourself. And he concludes the list by referring to foolishness, which is a term that speaks of behaving in a careless and irresponsible way where you conduct yourself in a way that's thoughtless and reckless, and it causes harm and ruin to yourself, and it causes problem and ruin to other people around you. Now, if you can't find yourself in that list, God help you. Your heart is a stone. And Jesus, again, isn't being exhaustive. He's just saying, listen, that's what we're all capable of. That's our natural default. And look, folks, that's why what we need is a cleansed heart. That's why what we need is a changed heart. And God help us that we never let our spiritual life become reduced to just rituals and routines because that won't change a heart. It's only a real relationship with the living God that a heart is changed by the power of God. And it's only in a relationship with Jesus that our hearts can be cleansed from that spiritual defilement as the blood of Jesus Christ as the Savior cleanses us from our sins. 